Hi, I'm Bill Cleveland, here to tell you it's movie time on Change the Story, Change the World, only with no movie, (laughs) just audio. The trick will be for you to close your eyes and listen to the music soundtrack and, to me, describe what's happening in a video called We Almost Didn't Make It, about a gallery installation by this week's guest artist, Beverly Natus. Let's see how it goes. Black Screen. Titles, White and Red on Black. Beverly Natus. We almost didn't make it. An audience participatory installation that invites visitors to imagine themselves as ancestors. First exhibited at the Center on Contemporary Art in Seattle and at Anka Gallery in Brighton, England in 2018. The camera pans to a tree-lined urban street in Brighton to a storefront gallery. The window sign says, Beverly Natus almost didn't make it. Behind a door with the number 14, we are directed upstairs. As we step in, we are confronted with a forest of draped and wrinkled, translucent plastic and signs everywhere that describe a wounded world in crisis. Overwhelmed. Can't even look at the news. Monsters in power with fingers on buttons. When will the nightmare be over? One paycheck away from the street. Sea levels rising. The soil, the water, the air, all trashed. Hurricanes, one after another. Overwhelmed. Ice caps are already melting. Everything is extracted. Everywhere rape. We should just go extinct. Radioactive oceans drowning in plastic. No one can save us. Moving forward through a forest of pain, the narrative shifts into a more hopeful voice. The next sign says, welcome. You are good. You didn't have to earn it. The next says, imagine yourself as ancestors. And then there is an instruction. What precious thing would you like the future generations to know about that may or may not exist 150 years from now? Then we move into an open art-making space where we're invited to create an artifact that symbolizes that precious thing. The camera zooms in on the studio, packed with people making icons, talismans and collages in response to the invitation. In the next scene, we see a white lettered message on a deep red wall. It says, we almost didn't make it, but you did not give up. And we are alive in your future. What choices you make and what actions you take may make it possible to not only exist, but thrive. The next image is a montage of created artifacts and an instruction that asks us to insert into the artifact a commitment to an action that you will take that might promote the ability of future generations to thrive. Fade to black. 
roll credits. If you think about it, 10,000 years ago in prehistory, the pre-art artists had a lot of jobs. You know, keeping track of the spirit world, maintaining the ritual fire, healing the sick, holding history, rituals and celebrations, preparing those young ones for adulthood, doing all those rites of passage, and all those activities related to the fertility of the fields and the families. And maybe most importantly, helping the community come to terms with the really hard edges of life on Earth, of the fearful mysteries of life and death and the often inexplicable and destructive aspects of human nature itself. Of course, that was a long time ago, but that doesn't mean it's not still needed, especially these days. Our guest, artist, educator, community healer, and provocateur Beverly Natus not only knows this, She's been functioning in that essential role for most of her life. Not surprising. She has a lot of good stories to tell. So, have a seat and have a listen. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, Feeling Magic. So how you be? I am well. Um, I'm... Despite everything, you know, it's been up and down. I have a really good surfboard for riding the waves of uncertainty. <laughs> I'll begin with a question that is quite simple. So what is mm-hmm. your work in the world? I have to take a deep breath with mm-hmm. that. My work involves many different things, but mostly it's about healing trauma mm-hmm. and reimagining what could be in the place of that. It started in a very personal way and moved into the collective quite quickly. And I discovered that when I told the story well, and it was vulnerable and compelling, that people felt moved to share their story as well. And eventually I had to create devices and forms for that to happen because I wanted people to feel invited in. And games emerged and subversive forms of different kinds, pretend forms, things that looked like one thing and were another. There's a lot of trickster in my work. And because I want to bring in audiences who don't think that art is for them, I've done this with students as well as the general public. I want people to feel welcome and curious and recognize that we share something in common. So when you say art... What does that mean for you in this practice? Art is a way for me to shift the language, shift the perspective, shift the way that we are connected to each other. It brings in metaphor. It brings in history. It brings in context. And it creates bridges. For those who do not know you, If someone were to say, oh, you're an artist or you're involved in the arts, what is your practice? What what history with art forms do you have? As a young child, I experimented with every art form. I danced, I sang, I played improvisational music on the piano. I drew, I created altars all over the yard. (laughs) I used found objects to create spaces that made me feel safe made me feel magic 
And I remember in high school, we had to write down what we wanted to do with our career. And I said, communicator through the arts, because I knew I, at that point, I couldn't choose which form. And in college, I was forced to major in something. So I became a visual artist. And as I became a feminist, I was a visual artist telling the stories of what it means to grow up in a female body. In graduate school, I found ways to connect visual art with my writing and my performing by doing audience participatory installations. And as I continued doing that kind of work, I realized that I was always going to be shifting form because it depended on the context. It depended on the audience. Who was the family I wanted to create in this particular space? I grew up at a time when I was lucky because there was a cohort of the counterculture and we were all trying to subvert in a lot of different ways. But I also have a family history of a father who was blacklisted for being an anti-fascist and a scientist. And this was a family secret. And I didn't find out until I was 32 what his real story was. And it was only because I was getting recognition in the art world and they were describing me as a political artist in articles in the New York Times. And my mother was freaking out and I had no idea. I thought she should be dancing in the street. I said, wow, this is an article that includes commentary about Goya and Picasso and I have a paragraph in it. And her response was, you'll never get a job you'll be on lists. And I was like, what are you talking about? And ironically, of course, two years later, I was hired by Cal State Long Beach. And I asked them why they hired me. And they said, we wanted a New York artist and you've been written about in the New York Times. (laughs) So I called my mom and I said, mom, I got a job. And it's because of that article that you were so worried about. And she said, what are you talking about? She had no memory of what she had said. But in any case, I think it's a very interesting thing. People here in the Northwest are always asking me, what kind of artist are you? And I I have to say, I'm the kind of artist who lets my content determine the form, lets my content determine the context. Mm -hmm. And it's always changing and it confuses people sometimes. And then I talk Mm -hmm. about artist books and photo text and what it means to work in community. And then maybe if I talk about the actual content that I've made work about nuclear war and my nightmares about it, I've made work about being unemployed. I've made work about my alienation in in consumer culture. I've made work about body hate, about recovering from an environmental illness. And I've made work about helping Tacoma reimagine our very toxic port of Tacoma Mm. and think about ways to heal it and ways to honor the Puyallup tribe whose land has been violated thousands of times. I have to get into the actual substance Mm. and steer away from the form for people to recognize what it is. I don't know if the word is ironic that Mm -hmm. what you're describing has for most of human history been the natural path and process that people who we now call artists followed. 
which is mm -hmm. they were in service to the community wherever it was and whatever was happening to it. And they brought their, their powers and their skills and their connectivity to help the community navigate that. And if you were on the Great Plains, you would have one context and one story. And if you were on the Pacific Coast, you'd have another. That was the job. And all those, mm -hmm. when you talk about the various forms, which mm -hmm. in the arts world, they're called disciplines. And it's such a recent thing when they got all carved mm -hmm. up and split up and turned into departments, different physical spaces. And I can see you uh, just pushing against all th this sort of flimsy recent history and saying, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, no. <laughs> this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, there's all kinds of expression that need to happen in different moments in time. And some of them are public and some of them are ritual. I've been very inspired by artists who really combine activism and spiritual practice. And that allows me to tap into my ancestors. Because as you said, from the beginning of time, humans have needed to express and heal. <laughs> and so art is such a profound thing for that. And it's been cut off from so many people, which is why I became a teacher. It's really important for me to offer this to people who thought they weren't artists and they were taking it as an elective. And guess what? There's a little passion burning inside you. You have a voice. You have a story you have to tell. Oh, but I can't draw. Well, guess what? I love any kind of way of communicating. So... You choose. You can use stick figures. I don't care. Tell your story. <laughs> yeah. Part two. Crayons and neighbors. And so, as a teacher, if you think of the role of, of the creator in, in prehistory, you carry the responsibility of connection to the spirit world. You carry a responsibility of the story of the community and you carry the responsibility of nurturing new members of the mm -hmm. community into the tribal mm -hmm. wisdom and, and the tribal practice. And that's what you're up to. So who are your students and how are they responding? It's very interesting. I've taught in many different contexts. I've taught activists how to use art as part of their activism at the Institute for Social Ecology. I've worked with senior citizens trying to get them to tell their stories in community centers. I've worked in museums, helping high school students notice the values that are being expressed on the wall by eliminating women and people of color from the walls of the museum. But in the past 17 years, I retired from my position at the University of Washington in 2020, but I had a very unique opportunity because they said when they hired me, you can teach whatever you want. And I'm in an interdisciplinary program. And so I said to them, okay, you teach about cultural identity and race. And I've made art about that. So I'm going to do a course on that. And I'm going to do a course on body image because I've made art about that. And you teach courses on that. So here's my bridge work between their curriculum and what I've actually made art about myself. I knew that the students who were coming, many of them are first generation students, the first ones in their family to go to college. A lot of immigrants and children of immigrants, 
people from military families, many who come from fundamentalist backgrounds or very right wing backgrounds. So it was a really, for me, it was being on the front line. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I loved working there in that way. And they would come into class and they'd say, I'm not an artist. And I'd say, okay, so let's talk about what that means. What does it mean for you to say that about yourself? And do you remember what you were like when you were four and somebody gave you a box of crayons? Did you say, I'm not an artist? <laughs> no, I'm giving you a box of crayons, except it's not literally a box of crayons. I want to bring your inner four-year-old into the room and trust that he, she, or they knows what to do. Yeah. And I'm going to show you some work that deals with the topic we're going to talk about there's an environmental crisis right now. There's a climate emergency. Let's find out how you are taking that in. Mm. How are you processing that? Do you have a color for it? Do you have a texture for it? Does it live in a space? And so it was a great teaching experience. Now that I am no longer in academia, I've been liberated. I am teaching online, like most everyone. I'm working with people all over the world. And I'm mostly mentoring right now artists who want to work in community during COVID times, artists who are working with social issues and helping them figure out strategies for bringing their work into community. And it's been really exciting. We're doing it through our nonprofit, which is called SEED. And SEEDS is an acronym for Social Ecology Education and Demonstration School. My partner in Boat Prime is uh, my husband, Dr. Bob Spivey, who has his PhD in social ecology and has co-taught with me activist art in community. And we co-facilitate these Zooms every two weeks with people. There, one can come. And we have people Zooming in from the Philippines and from China and from England and all over North America. And I'm really enjoying that. Plus, I got invited to do a workshop for 500 therapists who wanted to learn how to use art to process climate. Wow. And that was amazing. And so I'm not actually marketing or seeking out work right now. I'm just looking to see what's landing. And sometimes I have to say no because I had stretched so far. And I have to take care of myself. I've been learning a lot from the NAP ministry <laughs> and other places I find on social media, you know, pausing because we get caught up in the urgency of what's mm -hmm. going on right mm -hmm. now. And we get panicked. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I had good teachers like Joanna Macy and Thich Nhat Hanh and more currently, Adrian Marie Brown, who are reminding me to slow down, breathe, pay attention to what's going on in your body right now mm -hmm. and take that work of just sitting in present moment to your practice in a very unhurried way because it's not going to be resourceful if you are like panicking around things. Beverly, I'm sure you've thought about this, but the, mm -hmm. the stress that you're talking about really lives in the world that is around us now. We obviously, mm -hmm. we've, in modern life, there always has been a, a certain sort of tension, but 
This is a hyperversion of that. And mm -hmm. what I hear you saying, what I hear you embodying, which is extraordinary to me, is that people know the difference between a fake story and an authentic encounter mm -hmm. with something, even mm -hmm. something that's foreign to them or they're not familiar with. When the mm -hmm. space offered with grace mm -hmm. and humility, mm -hmm. the way you're describing it, and safety, people mm -hmm. rush in, especially now. They, we need that so badly. We so need it. Bob and I said, okay, we need to do something with our neighbors. And so <clears throat> at the beginning of the pandemic, there were people having little distance parties in the front yards last summer. But then people were getting more and more anxious. And so that stopped happening. And of course, the weather changed. And in the spring, I said, okay, I talked to many of our neighbors. We share a lot of food from our garden with our neighbors. And I said, would you be willing to host meetings in your front yard when the weather gets better so that we can design a story hive mm. for the neighborhood? And they said, a story hive? And I said, yeah, on Vashon Island, I created a story hive 10 years ago. It still exists as part of an eco-art project. It contains the stories of gardeners and farmers on the island and inspired them to plant seeds in a time of climate crisis. And it still exists. Mm -hmm. I went there yesterday and people are taking care mm -hmm. of it. I haven't been on the island for 10 years and it's amazing mm -hmm. to me. I was in shock and so grateful. So, you know, there's a whole new crop of vegetables growing and all these new things happening there. So it made me really happy. So I told them about the story hive and they said, why hive? I said, it's the honey of the community. Mm. That's what we need to harvest. And so the questions I'd like to ask our community, our neighbors, are what skills have they developed during the pandemic? What challenges are, there, are they still facing? And what is their dream for the world we're going to co-create now as things are collapsing? And I wish you could have been in our meeting last night. We were making cob together. We had music on and there were little kids and adults all stomping in the clay and mud and, and sand and straw to make cob bricks, wow. which we're going to build our little story hive out of. And it was delightful. And I don't get grants. These days, I don't even bother applying because in the Northwest, they don't know what to do with me. <laughs> I always get rejected. But I just said, okay, you know, I'm just going to initiate projects. I have the time to do yeah. it. I did a, a whole collaboration with 350 Tacoma to reimagine the port of Tacoma. And we had people coming in before COVID doing drawings of what they wanted to see in the port instead of a methane producing LNG refinery, which has put, been put into place in this crazy moment. Why are they doing it? Because somebody's making money under the table. Yeah. We have corrupt people in power. And so we still have to do things on the grassroots so that we don't go into despair about it. And that's my work, yeah. help people not be in despair. Part three, despair and empowerment. So you just described two instances where your practice has been put to bear, as I said, in a useful way. It's work. 
you did your work with your neighbors mm-hmm. and, and with your community. Is there another story that really rises up for you that personifies what it is that you've been working at for your life or that thrilled you? There's so many. Early on, I mentioned this earlier, that I discovered that when I made vulnerable work that was visually compelling, that people would just rush in with their story. So the first one I did was called The Wrong Day to Wear White Pants. And it was just a small drawing with a little dot of red in the crotch. Mm. And I was embarrassed by it and hid it. But my studio mate said, I'm going to tell everybody about this. And I said, really? He said, you're going to have lines of people in here. This was 1976. So early on in feminism and or at least feminist art. So uh, I did have a line of people and I had stories coming in via phone from various places. Then I moved to doing my work about my nuclear nightmares. And when I created this installation, I had people coming up and telling me how freaked out they were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And I was a very young child Mm -hmm. then, so I didn't have the same kinds of memories. When I put that installation in the New York Convention Center as part of a feminist art show, people left messages inside the installation under the sheets. And I was like, what? Okay. And then I went up to Blue Mountain Center to do a retreat in the fall. It was beautiful there. It was really hard for me to rework this piece for a museum. I didn't want to be thinking about nuclear war, but there were several things that happened. I was lying on a boat in the middle of the lake and these fighter jets strafed the the lake while I was lying there peacefully. And I learned that there was a strategic air command base nearby maybe 30 miles away, and they would strafe the lake regularly. So I said, okay, war's not far away. (laughs) And then I'm in the library at uh, Blue Mountain Center, and I'm looking for something in the library. And I always had this relationship with libraries where I pull books off the shelf randomly, thinking something's going to arrive. And as I was pulling a book off the shelf, Joanna Macy's book fell on my head despair and personal power in the nuclear age. I sat down and read the whole book. I wrote to Joanna because it was 1983. I had no email at that point. And she wrote right back. And then when I had my show at the new museum, I asked them for a time when I could do a despair and empowerment workshop with visitors to the show. This was unheard of. You don't do that in museums. And I had a box as part of my installation where people were invited to write down nightmare about the future or their positive dream for the future. And then the night of a blizzard in 1984, January, a hundred people showed up at the museum to break open the box and read all of those stories. And we left them up all over the installation This is how I knew I had to leave the New York art world, that it was never going to feed me. When it was reviewed, the reviewer said, well, it was an almost powerful piece. It was beautifully rendered. But then she had to go and make it audience participatory. How sophomoric. And I was like, okay, you're not in my paradigm. Okay, goodbye. (laughs) What are these people doing messing up this beautiful, sterile space with with actual thoughts? 
And I remember those kinds of experiences myself. And I, it is at once, it's the epitome of cognitive dissonance. It's first of all, what, who do you think you are calling yourself a critic of, of an expression of enormously vulnerable, powerful public sentiment around a piece of art? That's what it's supposed to be about, right? No, the New York art world is about commodities and mystique, and it's about distancing yourself. And I was successful within it, but it was my instinct said, goodbye, Mm. I'm going. This is not my world. You're talking about your real estate deals, and I'm talking about nuclear war around the corner. And so I left, and I never regretted it. Part four, Wilding the Muses. One of the things that I think about, somewhere along the line, someone probably says, gosh, Beverly, I never imagined that this was a possible way to have a life. Do you have any rules of the road that you could help me out with as I begin to explore this this mysterious world that you've inhabited? You know, it's not very difficult now to reimagine things because everything is collapsing, Mm. right? So the standard that most art students get in terms of this is how you do your career, this is how you do your resume, this is how you prepare for entrepreneurship, those things are shifting Mm -hmm. very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And so what I counsel people with is that you need to figure out who you want to be serving in this time. Who are the people who need the tools that you have to offer and and create relationship with them, really build relationship and maybe do some more training in things like permaculture design, Mm. things that will provide food, shelter, teach people resilience. There's a whole field in social permaculture, which I think is a remarkable one. There's the Emergent Strategy Institute, which is offering people all kinds of ways of thinking about how to be in the world as it's changing now. And that institute was inspired by Grace Lee Boggs, Mm -hmm. as well as Octavia Butler, Uh the writer. Mm -hmm. And, And there's another group in Oakland called Movement Generation. And there are all kinds of creative people who are merging food justice with art making and merging abolitionism with art making. And it's, I think it's an amazing time. Find your cohort, find your collective that you're going to work with. You can start with one other person and then build from that. It's key that we develop permeable egos for this new time we're moving into. The idea of me as an individual yeah, it's good if you work on your stuff, but if you're bringing things out in the world, find some people to do it with. And it's uh, actually, it's more fun. And, you know, we need to be surprised. Mm-hmm. And an awful lot of people who have spent time locked up in whatever edifice they've quarantined themselves in realize that if, if we're just looking in the mirror every morning, the surprises are fewer and fewer. In many ways, it's so interesting to me 
that you're basically just articulating an aesthetic of, oh, we're human beings. We we couldn't survive if we didn't cooperate. Mm -hmm. Our brilliance, our creativity is a collective effort. We Mm -hmm. just have to practice those things in in order to get good at them. (laughs) Yeah, it is definitely a practice. I'm reading Adrian Marie Brown's new book, Holding Change, which is about facilitation. And I think of myself as a facilitator as well as someone who bridges between Afrofuturism, indigenous futurism. They all talk about things being a circle. Mm -hmm. It's not the Western European conception of things being linear Mm -hmm. and that this is the end times and it's over. Mm -hmm. We need to be thinking about the circle we're part of. And I'm very, it's, it's the word is not hopeful. I'm just, persistent. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're, we're going to have the ideas, we're going to have the passion, but we also need to create the things you described, which is, oh, here's my neighborhood has all these places where people live. They could come outside and sit in a circle and manifest something that's way more than just a little barbecue. It is actually building mm-hmm. the community story, which mm-hmm. is immensely powerful. It is. Yeah. And everybody who walks by and watches, they're all greedy to find out yes. and we invite them yes. in. <laughs> Absolutely. I have to tell you the title of the new book, my first book that I'm writing since Arts for Change, is called Rewilding Our Muses, Creative Strategies for Navigating the End of the World. So it's actually going to be talking about a lot of the things you talk about in your podcast with all those amazing people you've interviewed, the spectrum of strategies that we have right Mm -hmm. now that people need to know about. And I want people to know about the ZAD in France, where they are making art every day together as a community. And it's a community that was built to prevent the building of an airport. Here's a little clip from a film about the Zad called Everything is Coming Together While Everything is Falling Apart by Oliver Ressler. This place, which is really this kind of laboratory of social invention, agricultural invention, architectural invention, new ways of educating, new ways of being together, new ways of dealing with dominations, new ways of dealing with with you know mental health issues, really having to think of having to do that all ourselves. That's a real threat to the state, actually. I mean, that's, in a way, much bigger a threat to the state than a movement against an airport. And the, the, the kind of one of the slogans of the movement, which says it all, is against the airport and its world. And that's really key, that it's really against the world that the airport represents, which is a world of capitalism, of patriarchy, of domination, of economic growth, of the dictatorship of the markets, etc. all that comes with that world. And, and it comes back to my reason for doing this is that if that story lives and it gets disseminated and shared, it can't be taken back. It's Mm-mm. escaped. It's a part of the collective imagination. And that collective mm-hmm. imagination is what we put to work when someone says, I've got a problem and we need to figure out how to solve it. And the, the more that we connect those stories, it is, it is the richness of the human experience. We obviously have a wide range of problems that we bring to this planet as a species. Mm -hmm. But there is this other Mm -hmm. side, which is the the miracles of our imagination and the stories that we weave and then the things that that result. Yes. And a lot of the weaving that's happening now is a kind of alchemy Mm -hmm. 
because it's weaving together human and non-human, mm-hmm. spirit mm-hmm. and activism and place and indigenous knowledge and ancestral knowledge. And it's, it's where we need to yeah. be right now is in that weaving place. Mm-hmm. Jay Jordan and Issa B, who live at the Zad, have just written a manifesto book called We Are Nature Defending Itself. And it's about this kind of entangling that we need to do like mycelium. Above and below the mm-hmm. ground. So, Beverly, this is one of those situations where you and I could probably spend the next two weeks having a a conversation (laughs) about all of the mycelium that we have stimulated as a result of this conversation. So do you have books, music, movies, anything that that has touched your heart and soul recently that you want to pass on to people? I've been diving into podcasts all during the uh, pandemic, and my favorite is one that's out of Spotify. It's called Emergent Strategy. And there are many people who are interviewed talking about ways that they are reimagining things. And pleasure activism is one of the themes because Adrienne Marie Brown, that's her book. And there's also another podcast that Adrienne's involved in that's called How to Survive the End of the World. And that's been going on pre-pandemic. It's very good. Octavia's Parables is another podcast she's been involved in. Here's a short clip from Octavia Butler in a 2005 Democracy Now! appearance, quoting from her 1990 book, Parable of the Talents. Choose your leaders with wisdom and forethought. To be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears. To be led by a fool is to be led by the opportunists who control the fool. To be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen. To be led by a liar is to ask to be lied to. To be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those you love into slavery. I love that she did Octavia's parables because... I read the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents back in the mid 90s. And that was one of the reasons I moved to the Northwest. Mm. Like I need to be where there's water. And I learned that's an illusion, that there's nowhere to move (laughs) and that the goal is creating relationships. I'm part of a group on Facebook called Deep Adaptation and There are always people coming on going, where can I live? Where will we survive? Should I be in the country? Should I be in the city? And I'm like, can you talk to the people down the street? Can you talk to the people in the next apartment? That's how you survive. Mm -hmm. So Beverly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, oh, you're so welcome. It's been an honor. Yeah. Yeah, Beverly, the honor and the privilege is mine as it is to know that our listeners are out there tuning in. In light of that, we just wanted to let you all know that this is the last episode of our first season. And season two will be starting up on February 2nd in the new and hopefully renewed year. We'll be starting with a bang with episodes on Pangea World Theater, songwriter Elise Witt, and filmmakers Jeremy Kagan and Gary Glassman. In the interim... We'll air some greatest hits from season one. 
please know your listening is the lifeblood of this program. So click on the subscribe button on your podcast player and share us with your fellow travelers. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. We are forever thankful for the extraordinary soundscapes of Judy Munson and the fabulous sound effects that we get from freesound.org. So until next time, stay well and spread the good word. Thank you.